Welcome to the Field Dynamics Podcast. We're here to facilitate inspiring dialogues about the nature of consciousness across disciplines, communities, and practitioners, all with a holistic perspective. From energy healing to somatic therapies, from neuroscience to meditation, we believe the most interesting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines. I'm Christabel. And I'm Keith. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Field Dynamics Podcast. Today, we're joined by Jahan Hamsezadeh, PhD. He completed his dissertation on psychedelics in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, which was then published as the book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach. Currently, he works as a facilitator for legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies in Jamaica with Atman Retreats, one of the few opportunities offered worldwide where people can legally experience psilocybin. Psychedelics, specifically psilocybin mushrooms, set the course for his academic career, first graduating from the University of Arizona with a major in philosophy and minors in both physics and psychology, and then earning a master's in consciousness and transformative studies from John F. Kennedy University. Additionally, Jahan has taken a comprehensive Hakomi somatic psychotherapy training assisted with the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy certificate training at CIIS for two years and trained in the Mazatec mushroom tradition. Jahan has spent two decades researching psychedelics in the context of both evolution and psychotherapy and says he, quote, knows of no more powerful means of transforming consciousness than those that use the assistance of psychedelics, end quote. So Jahan, we're really happy to have you with us here today. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here with both of you. Clearly, you're a proponent of how powerful and transformative psychedelics can be for people. Can you perhaps start with a kind of an elevator pitch for why this is the case, and then maybe a more detailed exploration? You know, the one that's coming to mind right now, if we kind of give way to that there's a non-duality in this world, that there's a link between consciousness and matter, Therefore, like a chemical catalyst that actually changes um, and reorganizes the brain, creating new brain growth will lead to deeply new experiences. And also as we deepen new experiences, it leads to deep brain growth. And so in this sense, we, though we have other modalities, which I love of transformation of therapy, of meditation, that may make the use of altered states of slowly moving altered states, here we can systematically get to there within half an hour to an hour. Through a chemical catalyst and the states seem to be fairly profound and as the you know the studies have shown like 65 percent of people have mystical setting in the right set and setting and so it kind of i feel really fast tracks the process when it comes to growth and awareness you had a life-altering mystical experience just after graduating high school while taking mushrooms at a music concert can you share a bit with our listeners about this experience and how it has informed your journey thereafter with regards to psychedelics Absolutely. Before that period, I would say I was an atheist, suicidal and depressed, had a very hard kind of traumatic life. Parents were both immigrants and here illegally. And um, on this particular day, I thought I was just going to see my favorite band play. Somebody that I met on the way to the concert gave me a handful of mushrooms. And I started to come on. I had uh, right now what you can kind of say the stereotypical experience of ego death, but I felt like I was about to die. It felt very, very real. And I imagined what it would be like for my parents if I just, you know, vanished um, and I sat in this fear for about 15 minutes, 
But out of the curiosity, I surrendered and let go and crossed to this threshold where it seemed and I felt and I expanded and became the whole auditorium. And this voice arose in my consciousness and, and it felt like the recognition of God, something I thought was impossible. And it was like, what do you want? And I mean, first I was like, is this real? And I said, yes. As I sat with this question, what do you want? I realized I'd never really been asked before, um, not in that deep, deep level, you know? And I said, I want to know what we are. And then it showed me by creating this light coming out of the ground and embodying every being. And I saw that we are light beings and love and light are one of the same. It said love's the most important thing in the universe. Miles after that, followed by learning and everything else is so insignificant compared to these two values. You'll never have to worry about them again. Uh, that experience showed me our deep interconnection, our spiritual reality, that consciousness pervades everything. It led me to years of synchronicity. And so I saw within 90 minutes, um, everything in my life changed. My experience of myself, my experience of the world, my sense of purpose, you know, and it kind of lit me on fire and sent me off to 20 years of higher academia. What do you say to critics of psychedelic experience who would call these mystical types of insights, as you've described, simply hallucinations or, or invalid for making claims about the nature of reality and ourselves within it? Yeah, totally. You know, first, the response that arises is that um, as time moves forward, I meet almost no critics. And as Michael Pollan writes after he came out with his best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind, he thought he was going to get all this pushback from, you know, the Republican side, from psychiatrics, from therapists, and he found no opposition. Um, the science is pretty conclusive. Um, we have 20 years in the modern era of looking at psilocybin. We also have experiments done in the 60s. Uh, and so. There aren't too many people I come across that write it off completely. Um, that being said, I can theoretically come up because I'm sure they exist. And I think it's because we have this ignorant view of substances and drugs. A lot of us grew up in a culture where we say, just say no to substances, just say no to drugs. And even as the Europeans came to the Americas, there was high level psilocybin use all across the Americas. We're talking about millions of people. The Aztecs are widely known, huge population, these psychedelics. And because of even the way we saw substances and came in with more of a superior background from, from Europe, there was the largest genocide, ethnocide in human history. So a lot of the people, because they were seen as pagans and, and, and kind of Satan worshipers because they're using plants to connect with spirits. Um, and so it's our naivety when it comes to substances. But the truth is the range of experiences with substances are so vast and unexplored and unknown. You know, So people, and even legally, we've classified psychedelics in the same category as heroin and schedule one substances when they're worlds apart. And so I think at first it comes to educating the public about the reality of the different chemical compositions and the experiences and states of consciousness. People have a mystical experience 65% of the time in the right set and setting. These are experiences that you're lucky if you have once in your entire life, you know, or sometimes come after years of meditation and they are profoundly life altering. And so what I hear, or what I'm saying is that we've created a systemic approach using the scientific method that this is reproducible that we don't actually have to take our word for it. If you're willing to set up the situation, okay, it's just a simple one day of experimentation. You know, So what is it to give over six hours of your life to find out this thing that could be really profound and is actually really safe in the right set and setting because it has no biotoxicity? So for those people that like really want to argue against it, I'm like, well, put in the research, do it right, but give a day over to something that could be really profound. You're sharing here how education and intelligent thought leadership is a, is a really crucial piece around this development in the use of medicinal mushrooms and um, psychedelics. 
How important is professional expert facilitation for those who are looking to use these drugs, not recreationally, but for therapeutic benefit? It's, it's first and foremost, the one I recommend the most. Um, it's, it's hard to overstate that. It's just like doing therapy with somebody who doesn't really know therapy as advised with somebody that's really skilled. You know, they can lead you a lot deeper. They have a lot more experience. That being said, there's a reality that a lot of people can't afford or can't find those highly trained individuals. You know, it's just like going to really like a specialized doctor costs a lot. A lot of people may not be able to go to that. And so the way I kind of rank it is if you can find a therapist or guy that's skilled, please, and then that's your means, it's, it's in your favor. They're going to set up the whole situation to be in your best interest and, and get the most out of it. The secondary to that, I, I'd recommend group ceremonies. Um, hopefully the facilitator is also really well-versed, maybe coming from a tradition or training psychotherapy, where you can lead maybe 12 people at a time. You won't get that individualized attention, uh, which is a lot better for trauma work. Where if you're coming with a high level of PTSD, it's better one-to-one -one instead of the group setting. That being said, a lot of people still can't find or afford that. And so this next thing I'd recommend is having a sitter, somebody just being there with you that you trust that helps you feel safe. In that regard, um, me and some friends created a free four-hour online sitter training. It's at silohealth.co because there's a huge amount of the population that lives under poverty, especially minorities, that they won't be able to afford a specialist. And so we have to at least give them the techniques for them to help heal each other. You know, so there's, and at the last, if there's really nobody around, nobody you trust, maybe self-experimentation at lower doses. Um, but a lot of the fear comes from being alone, like stuck, frozen states. And should trauma arise, um, I prefer you not be like alone in that situation. I'm really fascinated to go into the actual facilitation process that you do because of uh, what you're actively doing now and, and all of the, the academic rigor you've done to build up to that. However, I'd love to get a little bit deeper into the specific medicines you're working with. And because you specialize, or at least you're very passionate about mushrooms, I'm wondering what defines the mushroom experience? And, you know, is it distinctive from other psychedelics? How would you describe, you know, mushrooms specifically? Yeah, there are nuanced distinctions between the psychedelics. Um, I think there's more similarities than there are not. You know, Terence McKenna, the great psychedelic philosopher, he says a sense of um, boundary dissolving effects are a pretty big characteristic of the psychedelics, meaning the experience between all the parts of yourselves dissolve and become towards unity, the experience between you and other, the you and the community, you and the planet, you and the cosmos. So a sense of blurring of the separation between all things which could be confusing or highly enlightening, depending on, on, on what's actually happening. The main level of psychedelics that we call the classical psychedelics are the tryptamines. They all grow, grow up the serotonin compound, and that includes LSD, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and psilocybin. They are far more similar than different, um, but just a few atoms of a different composition creates quite a different effect. For example, LSD lasts 12 hours, psilocybin four, just a few atoms difference makes it a very, very differently potent compound. Um, a common characteristic, especially also found in psilocybin is in the beginning seeing sacred geometry where there's a geometric, symmetric geometric effects around the entire environment. And having sat this for a while, it's like, why is the introduction having to do with geometry? And for a lot of us have studied physics and math, it's, it's, it's pretty much the foundational elements of the physical construction of the universe, right? So geometry and mathematics are going to be the same across every planet. And so for me, there's a sense that you're encountering an intelligence that's all of a sudden inviting you and in speaking in math and beauty, pretty much saying like, hey, this is a high level intelligent experience. You're, you're contacting something much bigger and universal than yourself. Another thing that you see that are pretty common is 
the walls breathing, like everything around you is breathing, which again, kind of signifies that everything's alive and imbued with consciousness. And this really kind of gives back the main paradigm that people found in shamanism, which is most of human history. We were kind of in shamanic tribes for at least 200,000 years. And animism is that the world is alive and always speaking to you. And so it's imbued with enchantment, it it's a meaning and attunement. Then there's another common characteristic is a lot of animals. You know, we see that a lot in like power animals and shamanist tribes, but the stuff like the serpent comes up a lot, the wolves, octopuses, strangely. And so I see like these universal archetypal beings that come up in the people's experiences cross culture, regardless of the background. We're going to see geometry, probably animals. And I'd say at the height of the experience, if I'm going to say it like that, because it does seem so, is this experience of unity. Um, it's hard to even comprehend uh, a deeper experience than oneness because we're talking about oneness of everything. But there's an infinite ways to experience unity. The universe is that big, you know? So as I mentioned, you have unity with the environment, with the planet, with God, with yourself. And unity, we can also call it a sense of wholeness where the parts are being integrated. It seems to be healing because what trauma is, is parts of us being disconnected, you know, and as these parts unify, the parts that don't belong, that don't feel enough, that feel left out, that feel broken, as they unify, we turn to feel healed, which again goes with holiness and wholeness. For a lot of times, this is the first time people experience wholeness. Thanks, Jan. You're touching base with so many fascinating areas. It's tempting, um, you know, which way to go. Um, I'd love to ask you about your insights on how important preparation is in relation to these deeper insights and experiences of unity, right? These really extreme um, experiences people have. How important is that preparation in terms of mindfulness or wellness practices, or is it just irrelevant? I think preparation and integration sessions are required. I would never hold a journey for somebody without those. They serve many functions. Um, we'll start with the preparation moving in, especially if you're working with the facilitator, you're moving potentially in a very vulnerable state where your armor is coming off. It's very emotionally vulnerable. People tend to get very, very honest in ways they haven't be before, even with themselves. And so a deep sense of trust needs to be there and trust is organically grown. So I feel it's kind of inappropriate, for, if, especially if it could be avoided, to just jump into a psychedelic state with somebody you don't know. So normally there's a few weeks of building up to it and getting to know this person over kind of therapeutic sessions, doing regular therapy, getting to know their biography, building trust before this actual experience. I think it's important to read a little bit about the compound. This is potentially a very serious life altering thing, and it should be brought in with a lot of intention. I'd recommend read one or two books on the topic, you know, get some a good idea. For example... Um, it's very common to have this element that you think you might die. It's, it's, it's big. The death rebirth archetype is huge in the realm of psychedelics. And you can really buy into it and think you're really dying. And if you haven't really known enough about the compound that there's no biotoxicity, you could theoretically take a thousand doses of psilocybin, right? Unless you know that, you might buy into it and think you're actually dying. And that could be traumatic because your body thinks it's real. And that energy and fear can just be stored. Uh, you could do things that you may regret later. You know, all of a sudden leave the house, run, try to escape the experience. And end of the day, you have to just sit there for four hours. As far as the integration, that's like the hardest period. I think it's important for the guide facilitator to follow up in terms of um, psychological safety, making sure they're okay. Um, there's an experience that's well known that we call it ontological shock. All of a sudden, you're in a very different metaphysics and world than everything you'd ever thought. If you're growing up, for example, in a very conservative Christian religion, and all of a sudden you're seeing this universal sense of being across all religions, that could be destabilizing. Or you can have the states of like, I'm really profound and special, and all of a sudden you think you're the Messiah. We're all really special, right? 
And so there's a lot of things that could be destabilizing to the psyche. And so I think uh, providing context for their experience and, and giving fleshing a new paradigm is important. Um, and for myself, after I had this huge experience, I was about to start college and I was so lucky to take this class called God, Mind and Matter, kind of unifying everything. I read some texts, including Ken Wilbers, he's a transpersonal psychologist, that really set context for that, my own experience. So I was able to, through books later to find a lot of context, but if people are left without context, they can't really derive the, the kind of more accurate sense of meaning from the actual experience. So there's this emerging field of facilitation where formerly, as you said, ubiquitous in the Americas and really probably in all cultures worldwide, you might, we might say the indigenous cultures, which is the root of all culture worldwide, were communing with uh, spirit, nature, plants, etc., in various ways, various forms. And now there's this neo-shamanic revolution, we've heard it called before, where there's this revisitation, but it's happening through actual academic, clinical research-oriented facilitation that's different than it looked like in the past. So I'd love for us to kind of go down the rabbit hole of what this emerging landscape looks like in terms of this new form of facilitation that is done by people who might have degrees such as you, uh, who might have the uh, medicines be legal specific to the country they're working in, and to have more of almost a wedding of Western psychology, Western therapeutic process with a more traditionally shamanic process. So could you kind of just as we kind of go into this, what's the general overview of what's happening there from your point of view, given that you are doing this at a high quality established center in Jamaica and that there are other places with other medicines happening as well worldwide? I'll speak to the way it's coming to Western culture, whether it's through academics and through clinical trials and, and you know Western psychotherapy. And that's because that's the lens that our culture understands that sees as valid and established. So that's like the filter at our culture, which is like a high level of reason that it needs to move through and pass through for us to like ground it and integrate it and be like, this is really legitimate. Um, so it's really, really helpful, you know? Um, for example, keeping it completely in an indigenous context may not speak to a lot of us because we're not living their cosmology and their culture and their language, you know? And so, for example, this last year, I did um, 10 Santo Daime ceremonies, which is like, it's a religion that grew out of Brazil in the 1900s that integrated Catholicism and, and ayahuasca. And we have to sit there and sing in Portuguese for four hours, right? And Christian hymns. I'm neither really Christian and I don't speak Portuguese. But they're trying to keep this tradition alive. And I'm like, this isn't speaking to me. But the, the medicine really is. But the, these practices aren't. They're for that culture and for that time, you know. And so same way I feel with a lot of these indigenous traditions, we can synthesize, I think, as I mentioned, like a lot of the indigenous worldview, which is at our roots, a sense of like animism and everything's alive and everything's connected and everything is sacred. I think that's that's universal. But about the specific practices, I think that's theirs. Those are their cultures and we need our own. And I think that's going to involve bringing in some level of psychotherapy, um, which brings a lot to the table, a lot of stuff around shadow and a lot of stuff around trauma. For example, a lot of these indigenous cultures, because they didn't have the same level of understanding around trauma, they saw it as um, spirit stuck in your body. In, in the Mazatec tradition, susto, the fear stuck in you. They see it as exorcisms and possessions. We see it as trauma, you know, stuck energy, right? And so for us, it's helpful for, to go through the biography and see where this trauma happened, not necessarily have an exorcism, you know? That's, so that made sense of their worldview. This makes sense of ours. Um, I think that there's a lot to gain through, I think... Movement towards higher levels of involution include synthesis, bridging the past and the present to create the future. 
you know, so I think there's just something that we're doing now. We're, we're bringing modern society and ancient society together to really take us forward. Yeah, there's some really important topics here around the idea of cultural appropriation, right? How we can um, synthesize the sort of West at the moment. There's a pattern of Westerners going over to other places, to other traditions, to participate in these ceremonies and these substances in a way where things are really well held. But of course, they're held in the context and within the context of that cultural milieu, right? So how is it that we can skillfully work with substances in a Western context without losing what might be considered by some to be the ceremonious, the sacred nature of these substances, right? So it's not just a clinical setting. We're talking a lot about how these substances are um, appropriate, the incredible work that they do, the accessibility, right? How important it is to have the accessibility of these substances, not to all demographics, right? Who is this not suitable for? Where where is the line on this? You know, who shouldn't be looking at doing this? You know, is this a universal solution? Surely there's got to be some sort of areas of consideration around when when not to go there. There's a part of me that really believes they are for everybody, but they're not for everybody at any given moment. And there's a small population I won't work with, which is I'm sad to say that, and with certain diagnosed with certain psychological disorders, uh, for example, schizophrenia and borderline. Um, and it's not that they don't really, really need help. It's just they would re- probably require an entire team and clinical setting where they could stay at maybe overnight or a few weeks, um, because a lot of people with these personality disorders can be very destabilized. You know, for example, schizophrenia is kind of ungrounded. It's hard. They have a hard time knowing what's real and what's not. And then we're giving them a psychedelic where that can be even more taken further in maybe states of mania and ungroundedness. And so if they had a whole team that could be there, monitor them, ground them. So Stanislav Grof, he's one of the biggest researchers in this field. He's a helped start transpersonal psychology, worked in it for 60 years, helped place it over 50,000 people. He says psychedelics catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically self-organize into wholeness. That's somebody everybody can need. So if people with borderline or schizophrenia, it's a fractured consciousness, and it needs to move into wholeness. But it's a very nuanced, uh, careful way of situation. So you would require specialists for that, 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 that focus in those areas. We currently don't have the infrastructure for this. Because we don't have legal clinics across the U.S. yet, we probably will in two years, we don't have the team and situation that to take care of these you know, individuals that need a lot of care and help. So I hope in the coming years it will be suitable for everybody, uh, maybe not at any given second in their life, but at some point in their lives, I, I feel it's a, one of our birthrights in, in being human. Uh, could you walk us through what the process is right now that you have with um, clients as they come through an Atman retreat, for instance, in terms of what might be pre, what might be ceremonial or rather at the clinic, and then what might be the post? So with Atman, we have one or two preparation sessions leading, going out as an application process, partly to make sure how healthy they are, stable, going through medical records, what medications are on, psychological disorders, all these things we, we need to provide a high level of safety for ourselves, everybody there them um and then we have interviews to get to know their biography you know what they're coming in for their background high level of traumas what we're working on specifically to set the intention a lot of people when they come into this it's because about 90 percent of them they're in high level of pain you know people come in because they've tried all the other methods or willing to try something new uh they've probably been on medication for years and sometimes 20 years of psychotherapy and they're still feeling stuck and depressed right so they're willing to try something, go out of the country that's potentially a little bit more expensive than just seeing a therapist here. 
once we get there, we kind of really set the relational context by creating a lot of exercise games the first night. Um, a sense of safety is the foundation. And so much of safety is derived by knowing who you're around and the actual relationships. So we, so we play a lot of intimacy and connection games, being vulnerable with one another, the rest of the group. What we found right away, but intuitively we knew is the second biggest medicine in this specific container was the group setting. We almost all have trauma around groups and sense of belonging and connection. Right. And so especially if you're depressed, you're feeling disconnected and isolated from other people. There's a lot of shame, a sense of I'm not good and you're not connecting with others. So we're creating this container where a lot of people have something similar. They'll have some level of depression or trauma. They're going to another country. They're all fascinated by this process. And so there's a deep bonding that happens within those four days that we're together. Um, then we go over logistics and we keep it really light that day. People just travel from another country. Um, the second day, we have personal check-ins one-on-one with everybody, a larger group check-in. We begin the ceremony. It's like eight hours. We do two rounds of psilocybin. Um, and then people are pretty tired after that. You're kind of exhausted. Six hours is like a marathon. You're energetically, emotionally, intellectually exhausted. So we'll eat a meal, go to sleep, and then we have in, in, the in, integration the entire next day. Um, a larger group opening circle where we share the difficulties of the experience because a lot of times there's some element of struggle. And then the positive wins, the harvests. Then we have different art projects to integrate in other ways, movement, dance. Um, we have a bonfire at the end, so kind of more socially connecting. And then on day four, we have a larger integration circle covering the entire four days, not just the ceremony. And after that, once people go back, we have integration calls following up a week later. So it's very like tightly, comfortably held, the experience, like on both bookends. The people joining you, Jan, how many would you say, or what percentage are coming for um, a healing focus, right? Trauma, psychology versus those coming for these transcendent, more spiritual experiences? What I've found across the board is like 90% come to heal. Um, pain's a pretty big impulse to get rid of. Like if you're suffering, a lot of people had been suicidal for a long time. They've exhausted their possibilities. The hardest part of my work is dealing with expectations because they want a magic bullet. They're suffering for so long. They, they've read some of the suffer. Sometimes people's lives change overnight. I've seen it happen many times. It's not a guarantee. Sometimes it takes several journeys. So most people come in because they're impulsed by pain. Um, about 10% come just for self-enrichment and growth. That being said, even though people first come for pain, a huge portion of them heal and they keep coming back for the growth. They see their life really change in advance, not just out of the pain, but really get better. You know, it brings a lot more self-awareness, more awareness we have of ourselves and more we can do in life. And so we see a lot of people keep coming back uh, just because of the process of continual growth. You just mentioned several journeys. Uh, most people who have looked into, let's say, uh, psychedelic retreats. Uh, maybe they're looking a lot in South America, for instance. Um, a lot of these retreat experiences are formatted with two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten journeys. You know, certainly somewhere in the range of three to five is a common amount. You just described one in which there's one. Do you think that's most therapeutically effective? Uh, what do you think are the limitations to just having one experience? I definitely think one is a lot better. It's a big experience. It's a lot to digest. You know, we work with higher amounts. It's it's pretty big. Um, there's times where people are kind of can barely even speak the next day because it was so profound and to kind of shock them into another experience. That being said, I I've had I've had hundreds of journeys myself. And I've gone through periods where I've journeyed a lot, where it was really right for me for that moment. Um, I think it's appropriate to for a regular person two to four times a year to have a journey to really kind of further their life and get ahead. 
Um, I know with ayahuasca, people can do it really kind of back to back, right? With psilocybin, there's like this inbuilt mechanism of tolerance build. So if you journey one day, you need like double the, the second day, quadruple the third. And on day four, you could take whatever amount and it doesn't work. There's like an inbuilt mechanism to psilocybin that you can't keep journeying. Um, the tolerance is so high where literally you could do anything and you're no longer tripping. And so I think nature has that built-in mechanism where it's not meant to be done so consistently. Um, I think it's partly coming from a model of kind of capitalism of like, well, if we give them more, we can get more. Look, they're offering one journey, we're offering three. I, I don't think it's psychologically that grounded and healthy. Um, so I do empower, though, at the end of the people to make their own decisions. But it just seems like way, way too much for a system, for most people's systems. And speaking of that, do you think that that might be this, you know, this trend of having three or four or five of these journeys in a short amount of time, which is very typical of a lot of centers? Do you think that that is causing people to basically take on too much processing at once and not be able to integrate their experiences appropriately? I think that's a possibility. Of course, there's people that can go through it and be fine. Right. That's a, that's a real thing. There's people that can go through it and be fine. If they're working with high level of PTSD, which a lot of people are going in with that, that's way too much for their system. Uh, I mean, I've seen people be in deep, 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 worse agony they've ever experienced for six hours, which they release a lot. And they're really, I've seen people get over that have gone through that and gone over years of addiction overnight. But to put a system through that so quickly and so often, I, I wouldn't say it's compassionate. Right. If we're really bringing love to it, we have to kind of slow down and attune. We can still go really, really deep. It's like if you're somebody that's never, because a lot of people haven't had these experiences, really worked out much before, and all of a sudden they're going hard in the gym five days a week for the first time, they're going to strain and hurt muscles, they're going to hurt themselves, not be able to go back for a while. It's a process that doesn't need to be rushed to that extent. So I turned in with this Amazitech mushroom tradition, this Francois Borzat, she wrote a book, Consciousness Medicine. They trained guides for 30 years, and we'd go down and train with the Amazitech tradition, and they would never have done something like this. You know, and these are people, 30 years of training guides learning from the Mazatex, you know? So for us in that community, all this seems kind of silly and a little naive. Um, that being said, it, it, the, the amount of hurt goes up quite a bit so that, that's possible. And there's people that are going to be completely okay going through it. it. It depends on the level of emotional health before they went in, but that's not something the facilitators are going to know ahead of time. And they just signed them up for three sessions. Stepping back for a moment from the retreat setting and the, and the more clinical setting, um, particularly with regards to cyber silent, I'd love to hear your thoughts on microdosing, um, something that's increasing uh, incredibly in popularity. Just your thoughts on the benefits and potential limitations of working with these smaller doses. You know, for especially the people that are scared, I mean, most people have some level of fear of psychedelics. And I think it's pretty common, even myself, when I go to take a psychedelic, I have some level of anxiety come up because you're kind of stepping into the unknown. And stepping into the unknown for most human bodies is um, creates anxiety anything might happen. It's excitement and anxiety. It's really safe, but that's there. You don't know what's going to come up. And so for people that have fear, I think uh, microdosing is a great way to start. You know, James Fadiman, who really popularized this movement, you know, did, did large extensive underground uh, studies, sending questionnaires out to at least 1500 people uh, responded. And 90% of people found an improvement. That's a high amount. 10% of people an increase in anxiety. So the big downside is you might experience three to four hours of anxiety. Not, not a big downside for something that could potentially be really helpful, change your life. I've seen a lot of people get off of SSRIs that they've been on for many, many years with the help of microdosing. 
So indigenous contexts, they saw these medicines, we'll take psilocybin, for example, or we could take Aya, as master plant teachers. They're actual beings and entities with a spirit that you're communing and talking with and that you're building a relationship with. It's a very different, again, bring an animistic perspective, very different than the Western paradigm of you're just taking a compound, some something that's kind of synthesized and made. You're talking to an actual entity, and it's something there that's teach you. And that you're building a relationship with is, for, for example, if you have a romantic partner, you don't, don't just see them once. So you have a teacher, you don't see them once. It's, it could be a lifelong thing. You're dialoguing with nature. It's a kind of a big deal. And so microdosing is a way to have more regular communion with this plant spirit. The whole point is even they see it as like you're not only communing with them when you take the sacrament. You're in this lifelong communion with them. Like I feel mushrooms are teaching me even when I don't take them. You know. So in this way, it's a way to take a communal sacrament all the time and kind of be in that dialogue in that state. How do you define and explain the, um, the concept of sentience behind these substances from, from your perspective? Even bring, coming from a Western model, there's a philosophy I prescribe to called panpsychism. Um, and that's the idea that consciousness evolves along with matter, that consciousness is foundational in all the cosmos. So whether people have mystical experiences, it's part of the perennial philosophy, or even psychedelic experiences, there's a, some deep truth that you kind of come through that consciousness pervades everything and is fundamental in the universe. Um, I focused on cosmology for a long time, was a physics major, looked at cosmology, and the idea that consciousness just arose out of matter at some state doesn't make sense, that there's atoms and molecules and cells, and then all of a sudden subjectivity arises. It falls short. It feels silly. Why would that even happen? The only thing that makes sense is that subjectivity was there at the beginning. You know, at the Big Bang, atoms have a small level of subjectivity. Then as they complexify the molecules even more, cells have a subjectivity. So do all the fungi, the plants, the animals, everything's alive. And us with more complex nervous systems have more depth of consciousness. You know, it's it's this the body's created to hold that level of consciousness. So in that sense, there's sentiency in everything. The whole world is alive. The whole world's entangled psychically and communicating to each other, normally unconsciously, but we're always in dialogue with everything. Yeah, thank you for articulating that so well. That's something that I certainly feel and field dynamics is very much built upon, you know, theoretical models, as we would call them, uh, understanding the phenomenology of the aura and the energy field and the content you find energetically, how causally that relates to the physical reality and matter versus, let's say, electromagnetic domains or other dimensional domains or geometric domains like you're describing. When we look at traditional spirituality, or we look at panpsychism or animism, all these things point towards a, a vision of reality that's very, very different than the scientific paradigm most people are accustomed to now, which kind of just turns it upside down or inside out. And so it's not easy for people often to take on or think about, but it's really important to understand that we all come from that perspective. And that it doesn't mean just because the current paradigm happens to be opposite that now that that's, that means it's necessarily incorrect. Right, so maybe that's part of what we're doing right now is is turning turning the bus around, <laughs> looking at the signs from the past. Um, in terms of facilitation, do you take the medicine when you're facilitating with people? I don't. Um, you know, we just come come from that different background. I personally want to be really, really present. This is for them and not for me. And there's the potential when you take the medicine, you're pulled into your own process. You know, and I'd rather not. Um, I, especially over there, it's just like you're holding a lot of responsibility, a very big container, and you'd be really attuned and present. Um, I don't think that'd be in benefit of me or anybody else. If I want to journey, I can journey on my own. I can journey with a guide. It doesn't have to be in the context while other people are journeying. Well, just to kind of skirt the edge of that, do you think you mentioned some disadvantages? Do you think there could be any advantages of uh, co traveling or co dosing on the medicine? And 
also, um, what are the facilitation skills that you are bringing? I mean, presence, obviously, as you mentioned, but what are the kind of clinical facilitation skills you've learned that are active during the retreats or in general when you are working with people? So yes, there could be some potential advantages with people being on the medicine, medicine, but I think it can be a really hit and miss. There's times I've taken MDMA, for example, um, which kind of takes away fear, makes you really open, open-hearted, like coming from such a deep state of love where I'm like, well, I'm really perceptive right now. And if I was working with somebody, I'd be really attuned in helping them move forward and everything. MDMA, which, which I love, is also really heavy on the system, and it's not something you could be taking fairly often, right? And it doesn't move you way too much into your experience the same way like psilocybin brings you really internal and brings up a lot of internal visuals and it's best with like an eye mask on so you're inside, right? So it pulls me in rather than pulls me out while MDMA is very, very relational. So it's not something I would take, even though I could be very effective in, in that sense. I've been in several group facilitated trainings um, and ceremonies where the leader would take some medicine. And there's been several times I've seen them become less present and all of a sudden they're getting nauseous and having stomach problems and they're throwing up. And I'm like, wow, you're supposed to be holding the container, you know? And I've seen, I've seen other people go through that where somebody went through a five MEO ceremony, give everybody five MEO and then took some themselves and he blasted off. And then it took away her sense of safety. I'm like, there's nobody present in this room and you just put us in this very vulnerable state. So I think there is a possibility for times of them being hyper attuned like in God mode of like, I'm really universal and open to the universe right now. And you're kind of flipping like a coin and being like, how is this going to land? Psilocybin specifically is different every time. Like MDMA produces almost the same state every time, a state of openness and love and oneness. Psilocybin, you might move into shame, fear, pain, euphoria, guilt. It's, it's a wild card at every moment, which keeps it new and forever growing. You never know what's going to happen. And with that unpredictability, I don't think it's the best medicine for facilitators to be taking when helping other people. Um, as far as facilitation skills, I was trained in a lot of modalities, you know, as I mentioned, masters and doctors in consciousness. So it's a large theoretical framework from everybody that studied consciousness. Um, I took a lot of trainings in uh, somatic psychotherapy, you know, two-year training in Hakomi, which was one of the best trainings I've ever have done. Really grounds that trauma is rooted in the body and you have to really engage the body. That's where things are stuck. The body is also, you can check with people like, well, they're feeling something, you get in touch with their feelings, a doorway more like into the soul. And then you ask them, well, where are you feeling that in your body? That helps them really concentrate and creates a doorway into that experience. Um, I've taken a lot of trainings on Tantra, like seven different Tantra trainings. And though like, I don't engage with them physically in that way. It's been very helpful uh, working with sexual trauma. You know, one in four people have sexual trauma, you know, women, it's, it's pretty big. And it's actually the worst trauma I have seen. Um, a lot of it happens between you know, sadly say family members and people at an early age. So that breaks our sense of trust, a sense of intimacy and self-esteem. It affects intimate relationships, leads to a lot of addiction. There's a lot there. And so something I haven't seen enough is um, facilitators skilled and trained in sexuality. Um, you know, Stan Groff says it creates holotropic states, states that move towards wholeness. So anything that's repressed comes up, which gives a, a space for healing. And for a lot of times it's sexual energy. For and, and for whatever reason. And so that's where it can get dicey for a lot of people. They don't know how to navigate and hold that. Um, they can have a reemergence of power. I get people really animated and acting out and people might not know how to hold that. So when it comes to something like MDMA, it's really relational. So MDMA therapy is coming out and there's a lot of talking. With psilocybin, it's far more internal. And 
it's the best of the person could put the blindfold on and go in. So it's nice for the facilitator if they're able to stay in the state of being in silence and really know that the medicine's doing a lot of the work. You're not competing with nature. Nature knows more. They're going to, you know, so I wanted to be a professor for like 15 years. And then I came to the point where I learned a lot more from these medicines than I have from people. So the best thing I can do is create spaces for people to have these experiences and not necessarily be in the front of the classroom, right? That comes during the, the integration process. And so you have to be okay sitting there for hours while the person's inside, but you're there should anything come up. Deep trauma, now you're processing with them, now you're holding them, now you're being very attuned with them. You know, And a lot of the therapy stuff comes afterwards, not actually during the psilocybin experience itself. I'm really, I'm really glad you spoke there um, briefly of the importance of embodiment, right? Of grounding these experiences into the body and as part of the integration process. It's a real key piece. You spoke um, very inspiringly about the beauty of math um, earlier, the role of geometry in the construction of the universe in terms of contemporary physics and math. This may be a question slightly to the side. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If we consider ancient traditions such as the Vedic texts and the role of um, geometry, say in chakras, and the, the awakening process, Kundalini awakening, how is it that you might um, verse, describe, explain the process of awakening from um, your background and training? You know, I think there's at the core of us a part that's eternal, that's made of light, that is, we are love, like that's our deepest identity, that's what God is, that's why the universe exists. And so I really try to ground people in that identity. So what I've seen in at the core of all personal development models is a transformation of identity of who and what I think I am. So even looking at like Maslow's hierarchy, there's a sense of even self-esteem part of their safety. And then there's like, I'm not enough. I'm broken, which is, that's what depression is. I don't like myself. I'm not enough. Right. And so what you're trying to heal when it comes to depression is their sense of self and their relationship to self. And what have we seen as people move through higher spiritual developmental models is there's an owning of a sense of divinity. You know, the world's very different if you come to the point of I'm eternal and I'm, I am love, that love is more real to of who I am than even my own name and biography. You, you're, you're less scared, you're more giving, you're more open, right? And so I, I see this process of um, awakening as a movement of identity, but it's not just conceptual. It's There's different senses that come online. There's different... Um, kinds of awareness. The way you see the world is different. The way you navigate the world is different. Your values change. The very paradigm, like it's different to be like, I'm in an evolving, living, interconnected world, as opposed to the one that's modern, that's a more like capitalist space where everybody's isolated and in it for themselves. And I'm like, if we're not, because if you're not connected, if we're not interconnected, and the whole point of life is to win as an individual, which in our world is make the most money because that's where we hold the value. Right. But what we find, for example, in Maslow's developmental model, he put the highest level of transcendence, which is after self-actualization. So after you know who you are as an individual, then you realize you're a part of everything else. It's the transcendence part. It's the transpersonal. I am one with everything. And therefore, the best, biggest depth of meaning comes from being helping and being of service. Right. You may still make a lot of money, but the whole point of that is of, to be of service. So there's a value shift that happens, you know, as people develop. Really appreciate that, especially the the centrality of identity there, which is a very complex thing for people to even start navigating. Very often people don't associate spirituality necessarily with the idea of identity, but that they're actually just, I, I consider those things interchangeable is to look into who and what we think we are as the spiritual journey. It's a very, uh, it's a very deep and very um, sincere quest that people need to go on in order to actually look into that in an honest way. This is a little bit of a surface level question, but I'm tempted to ask because you have such expertise with mushrooms. In terms of strains, 
Do you favor any in particular? Like for instance, is there a strain of uh, psychedelic mushrooms that have the, has particularly great potential for like healing work and trauma, as you've described versus something that has more of a inclination towards a unitive experiences? I have not found that yet. That's something that's not possible. Um, you know, what we're mostly using in the psilocybin mushrooms is the compound psilocybin. And, but so, the amount of psilocybin is varied between strains. So there's some strains that have four times the amount of other strains. So that's a huge factor. You know, a common one that's called this penis envy is like 1.5x uh, of compared to something like Golden Teachers has. And so the amount you give will vary. Um, the main, and it's not that there might be an entourage effect of other compounds within the specific strains. We haven't done enough scientifically to really explore that and the effects of those other compounds because we focus just on psilocybin. And so really it only comes out to the amount of psilocybin specific to each strain. Through the lens of like entity, as you described, that seeing the mushroom as like an entity of sorts, would different strains then, given what you just said, be looked at as kind of like they're all different personalities, but they all share the same species. They're all human. Is that kind of how you might look at strains? In terms of how the mushrooms has evolved, there's like, fungi has like 10,000 different kind of sexes compared to what we have. And it seems that psilocybin has moved and evolved across the entire world in a very strange, unique way. There's over 200 different species of psilocybin mushrooms across the world. They're far more similar than different. Um so Terrence McKenna, even this is a pretty far out theory, really studied this field. At the, the, him and his brother published the first psilocybin mushrooms grower's guide in late 70s. We didn't know how to grow them until then. And he's like, look, I'm going out on a line here, but this is what the mushroom told me. He says, I'm an intergalactic being. We know spores can exist through space, right? And this, these spores came from another planet. And what this does is it entangles minds across planets. So we're already, when we get mushrooms to the people here, I've seen so many people have these kind of collective unconscious experiments of seeing Mayan and Egyptian pyramids, of seeing, you know, Hindu temples. It's strange. It's not a part of your culture. And all of a sudden you're immersed in these worlds. As I mentioned, that geometry is universal across cultures. So we're having a sense of a large collective unconscious here. A lot of people see alien planets on DMT and psilocybin. It's just, it's, it's pretty huge. You talk to lots of different entities. And so what the mushroom told him is that it will eventually connect us to mines and other planets and tell us how to grow spaceships when we're ready. We're not ready yet. That's a level of technology. We're barely figuring out what to do with nuclear bombs right now, right? Like, we, I don't know if we have the, we're ready to blast off, but he's like, we're storing that knowledge database. The same way, you know, when it comes to quantum mechanics, atoms are entangled, you know? So when an atom's entangled across the galaxy, as it changes here, it communicates instantaneously on the other side, right? Minds are also entangled. It builds on the same structure, right? So people have remote viewing, telepathic experiences. They're, they're far more common on, on psychedelic states because you move in the state of oneness. You know, what I saw in the realm when I had that huge psilocybin experience is that there's only one being and it's behind everybody's eyes and listening through everybody's ears is this oneness, Right. So we're like interlocking through the states of deep emptiness within everybody else. Right. Just as the, when it comes to physics, there's no center of the cosmos. It's all the center. So in this sense, from that perspective, there's just one global mesh being and mind that's in the form of fungi that's talking, you know, and it could play many different variations and roles in terms of strains. Um, but that's just it kind of complexifying and evolving very small. But you're moving into the same kind of large brain in that regard. What's been your biggest challenge in your development in working with psychedelics, either personally or as a facilitator? 
No, personally, it's gone through lots of seasons with it. You know, when I was young, I've been fascinated with them before I even took them at age 15. I took my first psilocybin experience at 15, but I was fascinated before. The idea that I could take a compound and changes the way I see reality made me question, how do we then even know what reality is if it changes so quickly off of just a chemical? I had a lot of transpersonal experiences when I was younger, which I was super, super grateful for. And then as it moved into the 20s and early 30s, it got more shadow work and darker and harder. Um, for example, mycelium, the, the body of mushrooms, one role they play in nature is they break down dead matter. You know, when something dies, it breaks it down. So it's nutrients for the rest of the system. And there's a good book by James Wasso called Decomposing the Shadow, Lessons on the Psilocybin Mushroom. So the mushroom work can be actually really hard. The benefits are incredible, but that's because you've done the deep shadow work to make that kind of solid. You know, forces you to see all parts of yourself, including the shame and the darkness. And you can get to deep realms of intergenerational trauma. You know, so much of your body is inherited, you know, genetically from your from your parents and their lineage and including aspects of your mind and your emotions, right? And so you can move through a lot of your personal biography. Then you start hitting a lot of intergenerational trauma. There's a good book called um, Dark Night, Early Dawn by Christopher Bache. He was a philosopher and professor for 30 years in the area of philosophy and religion. And he did um, high-dose LSD's journeys for 20 years, so like 500 mics, right? And in one of the best books I would read, I highly recommend. Um, and so what he found is through these constant deaths and rebirths, he would come to the point where he becomes 10,000 humans, and including feeling all their suffering and all their pain. And he goes through genocide. So it's very meaningful, but very painful. And he released the whole remake of it as a newer book called LSD in the Mind of the Universe, you know, um, Diamonds from Heaven is the subtitle. And so you're opening to potentially enter into deep amounts of pain and fear. As I mentioned, did 10 times I had this last year. And most of the time it was like walking through hell. Like how much fear can you hold and digest and integrate? The outcome is you feel more powerful and grounded and stable and less fear of fear. But the, the process of gaining it is actually really hard. It's like alchemical. Like how can I take this difficulty and synthesize it and break it down? Um, so I wouldn't say it's easy, you know, and the more I've stayed with it, the more hesitant I've become the journey. I do it because it's medicine and it's good for me. In the beginning, it was fun and alluring. I'm really glad. Now it's like, well, you've had your fun. Are you ready to just go even harder and do more work? Yeah, I really appreciate that. Christabel and I both kind of recognize the shadow a propensity in both of us and that just this real interest in just going into the darkness completely and as intensely over and over and over again. And, and as you keep doing that, as you mature as a practitioner, as a person, as a soul, your relationships that continually changes, not only in the internal experience and, you know, what it's like to navigate those spaces, but also your, your interest in it, how it relates to your curiosities, like, like, you know, going from something kind of alluring and attractive and exotic to something that becomes quite familiar and it starts to become maybe I have a different orientation to it in the long run. So fascinating journey. I love, I love what you said. I want to really check out that book you just mentioned. You've said, I'm going to grab a quote from your book, that humanity's story needs to be integrally grounded, both experientially and scientifically, end of the quote. So do you feel that psychedelics uh, are truly a skillful way for people to have this direct experience of reality in a way that simply science and intellect cannot provide? Do you think that this is the bridge between people reading a book about unitive experience and being able to actually get a sense of it for themselves? 
highly, you know, personally, I think it's a method for breaking that level of paradigm, you know, for myself, before I really got into psychedelics, before the age of 18, I was very much in that reductionistic scientific worldview. I felt science is the only reality, whatever can just be measured and explained is what's real, everything else is kind of made up. And it was really an experience of 18 of how crazy that whole thing was, because you're negating consciousness in your actual experience, which is you're denying half of reality. Um, and I've seen many people go through that where, wow, one, we're fairly, I think, relatively young as a species in the culture. Science is even kind of young and you keep breaking grounds of the way we see things work. We still don't understand even quantum mechanics and even the whole evolution of the Big Bang very well right now. Things keep shifting and changing. And so we have a limited framework. So I think we have to come into that very humbly. And uh, you know, science describes the external world. That said, there's an entire internal world that becomes very obvious to the normal psychedelics. It's, the world's just as deep inside as it is vast outside. They're, they're one world. They're just two sides of the same coin. You know, for example, here's like, I think something that's highly paradigm shifting in the city that's going right now. It's at the Imperial College of London, and they're doing a study right now on um, DMT and entities, which I think is one of the most fascinating studies being done in science right now. Um, where they found extravenously they're able to keep people in a DMT state for hours. Normally people smoke it, you're in there for like 15, 20 minutes. So now they stay in there for four hours, and the entire point of the study is to make sense of all these entities people see. Because a lot of people see the same entities over and over, and when you come in contact with such an entity, you know this is ontologically real because all of a sudden they're more intelligent than you, they know more than you, they're showing you things, they look vastly different. This is like, you're like, I can't make this up. This is way beyond me. And it's just a given when you meet something like this, which changes your entire metaphysics of the world and the way we see it in real. Like there seems to be many dimensions to reality. And so we're just starting to explore that through science. We don't have a paradigm right now to make sense of that, right? We don't, you know, so, so uh, I think a humbleness that science can keep evolving is good. Um, and until I had direct experience, I wouldn't believe a lot of this, you know, and I know there's a lot of people out there that were just like me that until like I see it, I'm sorry, I can't believe it. We can rationalize almost anything. We can make almost anything up. But once you have the direct experience and it's your being and body, it's a difference between like theoretically thinking Italy exists and having been there. I don't want to, I've been there. It's in my body. It's in my being. It's not just an idea, you know, and it's the same with these psychedelic states. When you experience unity, something inside just wakes up and you're like, wow, I, this is the most real thing I know now. And it's, it's a, you wouldn't rationally write that off. Yeah, yeah, something that can't really be highlighted enough, the, the importance of the, the experiential, the direct knowing, the direct experience. That Imperial College London study sounds fascinating. It's something we'll have to check out. Thank you for sharing that uh, resource. As a closing question here, as we, we bring things to a finish, I'd love to hear about your, um, your hopes, your desires, your intentions for the field of psychedelics going forward. You know, uh, the core part of my dissertation book was this idea put forward by Terrence and Dennis McKenna. Um, that it was consciousness expanding mushrooms that catalyzed human evolution. I read his book, Food of the Gods, at age 19, and I haven't come across a better theory of human evolution in 20 years of studying evolution and consciousness all through academia. The idea being simple, um, that there was consciousness expanding compounds in the environment where our ancestors evolved that expanded consciousness. Turns out there, there are. You know, Paul Stamets, a great mycologist, points out the most common mushroom in the Africa savanna is of a psilocybin variety. We see archaeological evidence showing cave shamanic use of um, mushrooms all over Africa and all across the world. They grow everywhere. 
see it all through the Americas that grow all across the planet. And now what we've known now from these last 10 to 20 years of studies with psilocybin, over the last 10 years, we've been doing MRIs. You know, psilocybin catalyzes what's known as neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain actually physically begins to grow. It quiets what's known as the default mode network, the ego part of the brain, and therefore creates a hyper-connected brain sense itself, um, increases neuroplasticity. Um, and spinogenesis, the re-enlivening of dead rights that have atrophied. As I mentioned, 65% of people in the right setting, setting have a mystical experience, but 80% of people that have treatment-resistant depression actually begin to heal because the brain repairs. 80% um, of people with near end-of-life anxiety that are scared of death actually overcome that with psilocybin. 80% for nicotine and alcohol addiction. We also know it helps OCD and cluster headaches. And so a lot of these things we're seeing right now in creating psychological and emotional and health, increasing creativity and empathy would have been true just for our ancestors. So if they came across these substances, which we know archaeologically they have over and over, and as we had mentioned, shamanism was the first religion that arose in, in humankind because we're using the plants in the environments for food and then dialoguing with spirits in the world. It would have been very, very useful for them. You know, and here we have a grounded explanation of the increase of brain growth, of the emergence of religion, of the, the creation of art in caves, you know, with the creativity and then we have tools that are shaping the environment, the, the catalysts of, of the creation of language and symbolic thought. I mean, everything kind of starts to fit and be explained. And so it really fits this huge picture that was missing for how did we evolve as humans, which was a huge question of mine for a long time. And in 20 years of looking for it, I found no contradiction. I've been open to it. I had to defend it as a dissertation. My book's been out there. Nobody's gotten to refute. I'm open to any refute. I just haven't seen it. But as we keep doing more studies, the more evidence piles up. And so for me, this brings high-level legitimacy to psychedelics. You know, the spiritual and evolutionary potential. How could we ever? It's only naivety that we made some, these things illegal. But it's our, not only our birthright. It's what created us, that we, we are born out of a symbiotic relationship with nature. The same way that's how everything evolves is through a symbiotic relationship. So, And not only does it bring us a deeper sense of human identity collectively, it's a doorway forward into the future. What we have found over and over through psychedelic studies, including clinical settings, is people experience a heightened sense of nature-relatedness, a higher sense of connection to nature. Um, Richard Doyle, he's a professor that wrote this book, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere. He wrote thousands of trip reports. And he said that the main psychedelic insight is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected system and they should be returned ecodelics. They bring ecological awareness. It's where there's, there's compounds that grow in the ecosystem that bring ecological awareness. So I think a big reason that we're in this ecological crisis, economic crisis, social crisis, is because we haven't been utilizing these substances that pretty much grow in every ecosystem. They're there to maintain ecological consciousness balance in the ecosystem. And so it's only by really moving back to where we came from, integrating the past, I feel we can really move forward and create the sustainable world. That's earth medicine, literally. Jahan, if people want to find you, um, how should or could they do so? Yeah, my website's psychedelicevolution.org. And you can find me on Facebook or Instagram with my first name and last name. And my book's on all the main areas, the Amazons, the Barnes and Nobles, lots of sites. And it's also on Audible and on, out there as an audiobook. Definitely recommend it for people who are interested in this subject matter. It's a great resource. Thank you, Jahan, so much. We really appreciate your time and energy today and uh, the inspiration you've brought regarding these things and how we might think of them. It was really an honor to be here with both of you. Truly inspiring, Dado. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to hopefully connecting again. Thanks for listening to the episode. What really supports the podcast is providing a rating and review of the show on your preferred listening platform. This helps us get the message out to a wider audience. 
If the topics we discussed today appeal to you, do take a moment to subscribe. Lastly, we invite you to check out our website, fielddynamicshealing.com, to learn about our training programs, private session work, and to see how we're setting the standard in contemporary energy healing. Many thanks, and see you next time.